0: Chapter 6 of The Unconditional Freeness of the Gospel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by William Bruce McFadden. The Unconditional Freeness of the Gospel by Thomas Erskine. Chapter 6 Thoughts Suggested by the Foregoing Remarks. Perhaps some of my readers, as they look back on the views which I have been laying before them, may refer to this very chapter, John seventeen, from which I have been making these most comforting quotations, as a complete refutation of what I have said concerning the universality of the love of God. For in that prayer our Lord only prays for such as either were then, or should afterwards become believers. But there is no inconsistency here. The circumstances of the disciples at the time and the character of the prayer itself fully explain this limitation. The disciples were at that moment without knowing it on the very brink of a most tremendous event, which was to shake all their high hopes of their master's success and which was at first sight to appear the complete triumph of the world over his cause. He had all along been forewarning them of this event, And particularly as it came near its accomplishment. Their eyes were holden that they should not see the truth, yet he continued to prepare them for it. He at last distinctly told them that he was to suffer at the feast which was about to be celebrated. And when he sees their hearts dejected by the intelligence, he has recourse to another mode of encouragement and consolation. He prays in their hearing for them to the Father. And in his prayer, he speaks as the high priest over the house of God above, and thus draws their thoughts and expectations past the present sorrow, and fixes them on that future triumph and glory, which should be the consequence of his sufferings, and which should be for a praise and a rest and a joy to his people for ever and ever. They were soon to stand in need of a very special and very strong consolation, and he gave it them. He let them know that he bore their individual names on his heart before his father. They were soon to see him crucified by the world, and thence would learn to dread the world as their own enemy. He therefore prayed for them, as distinct from the world that they might be kept from the evil that is in the world. They knew that he had come to seek and to save the lost, but they needed in this their extremity something more precise, more special, more directly applicable to themselves, and he did not withhold it from them. Therefore he began his intercession with a prayer for them individually, but he did not end it so. He proceeded, as high priest, to embrace all who should afterwards believe on him through their word. By doing this, he gave to his then little flock an encouraging assurance that their number should be increased, whilst at the same time he bequeathed an enduring consolation to all who at any period of the world should put their trust in him. He does not in this prayer appear as the savior of sinners, but as the elder brother of his disciples and as the head and high priest over the church of God. All are invited to come into the temple and the access is open to all, but the high priest intercedes only for those who have entered. The names and titles of Christ are all relative. He is the shepherd of his sheep, He is the head of his body. He is the high priest of his church. He is the Savior of sinners. He came to seek and save the lost. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He invites all to come into the temple, but those who listen not to his call remain without, lost in the death of sin. They enter not into the church of Christ. He is neither their head nor high priest. They have no part, therefore, in this intercession, whilst those who do listen to him and whose hearts are open to receive his message of love do in that very message receive a new life. His love becomes their life. They become members of his body and partakers of that divine life of which the fountain is in him. HE IS THEIR HEAD AND REPRESENTATIVE WITH THE FATHER, AND AS HE IS THEIR RIGHTEOUSNESS, SO IS HE THEIR INTERCESSOR. HE IS NOT THE RIGHTEOUSNESS OF THOSE WHO DO NOT BELIEVE IN HIM, AND THIS NOT FROM ANY UNWILLINGNESS IN HIM TO BE SO, BUT BECAUSE FROM THE NATURE OF THE THING IT IS IMPOSSIBLE. HE CANNOT BE THE CONFIDENCE OF THOSE WHO DO NOT CONFIDE IN HIM neither can he be the nourishment of those who do not feed on him. So also he is not the high priest of those who are not his people, of those who are not the members of his church and of his body. He cannot be the organ of those who are not partakers of his life. He cannot present the prayers of those who do not pray, nor the offerings of those who offer nothing. As the Savior of sinners, he says, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As the Savior also, he prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But as the high priest, he says concerning his own disciples, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for those whom thou hast given me. For they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. He is their organ of communication with the Father. They are one with Him. Their life is derived from Him. Their prayers are the breathings of His Spirit within them, which He presents with acceptance before the Father. Let us not, then, lose the comfort or enjoyment of this prayer by supposing that it marks any limitation of the Saviour's love. It is not uttered by Him as the seeker and saviour of the lost, but as the organ of those who are partakers of His life, and the members of His body. Let the believer read it with great joy, for it is now being made in His behalf, and it is always heard and always answered. And let the unbeliever, as he reads it, compare his own hopes for time and for eternity with the hopes of the least of those who are prayed for in it, and let him be urged to flee from wrath and to take refuge in this ark of the covenant of love, this true temple of the living God and let him understand that he has but to admit that love of God, which has been long knocking at the door of his heart, in order to his being himself admitted within this sacred enclosure. Reader, ponder the last words of the prayer. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. You see that the great end and object of God's doings and Christ's suffering for man is that the love of God, that very love with which the Father loveth the Son, may be in man, and abide in him, and unite him to God, for ever and ever. It was for this that Christ hath declared and will declare the name of God, his holy love, his unwearied compassion. Christ declares this name that it may become a new life in man, a life unsubject to sin or sorrow or death. A life which is nothing else than a stream flowing from and continually supplied from that eternal fountain of holy love which is in God. And this name is not declared that men may amuse themselves by talking about it or reasoning about it, but that believing in it they may be one with the Father and the Son. It is not by philosophy or speculation that we can know God, but by the desire of the heart after him, by the opening of the heart to receive him, by the spirit of prayer. Except ye receive the kingdom of heaven as a little child, ye shall in no wise enter therein. There is no true religion except THE HOLY LOVE OF GOD ABIDING IN THE HEART, AND THERE IS NO HERESY SO GREAT AS THE WANT OF LOVE, THUS ALONE CAN GOD BE KNOWN. HE THAT LOVETH NOT KNOWETH NOT GOD, FOR GOD IS LOVE. I HAVE OFTEN HEARD IT ASKED, DO YOU THINK THAT THE BELIEF OF SUCH OR SUCH A DOCTRINE IS ESSENTIAL TO SALVATION? This question always seems to me to indicate a mistake in the mind of the asker as to the nature of salvation. The heart which truly chooses God as its chief good has salvation. For salvation is the love of the heart for God on account of what he is. The faith which produces this love is saving faith. Any faith which does not produce this love is not saving faith. But let no one mistake. It is quite possible to love a God who, after all, may not be the true God, but a mere idol of the imagination. God has Himself told us in His Word what He is and what He has done so that we may know Him and love Him in His true character. If we love God for something that He is not, As, for example, for a good-natured indifference, whether his creatures are holy or not, we do not love the true God, but a lie. A true knowledge of God is necessary to a true love of God, and it is only a true love of God which can produce conformity to his will. The evil, then, of taking up a wrong doctrine or a wrong view of a doctrine does not lie in this, that God punishes false doctrine, but in this, that it frustrates the great purpose of revelation, viz., that the love of God may abide in the heart of man, conforming his mind and will to the divine mind and will. The Lord hath not known thee, but I have known thee, O infinite blessed knowledge, and we may partake in it. No man knoweth the Son but the Father, Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. The Son of God has declared his Father's name, and will declare it. We have not to ascend into heaven, nor to descend into the deep to find him. He is very nigh us, and he longs to reveal the Father, and to give us that knowledge which is life eternal. It is through the Bible, read in the spirit of prayer, that this knowledge is chiefly communicated. Reader, do you believe that the Bible is the gift of God and that God caused it to be written for this very purpose, that by it he might direct and support and comfort man in his journey through time to eternity? Do you not need direction and support and comfort? If you do, where else can you expect to find it? We are so accustomed to the sight of a Bible that it ceases to be a miracle to us. It is printed like other books and we are apt to forget that it is not just like other books. But it is a treasure of unspeakable value for it contains a special message of love and tender mercy from God to our soul. Do you wish to converse with God? Open it and read. Look to him who speaks to you in it and ask him to give you an understanding heart, that you may not read in vain, that the living word, of which that written word is but the expression, may be in you, as good seed in good ground, bringing forth fruit unto eternal life. Take heed not to separate God from the Bible. Read it in the secret of his presence, receive it from his lips, and feed upon it so will it become to you, as it did to Jeremiah, the very joy and rejoicing of your heart. Let us seek to make ourselves acquainted with the Bible, but in doing so, let us remember that however much we may add by our study to our knowledge of the book, we have just so much true knowledge of God as we have love, and no more. Our continual desire and prayer ought to be that our true notions may become true feelings and that our orthodoxy and theology may produce in us holy love and holy obedience. Love is the religion of eternity, and the religion of eternity is the only religion for us who are made in the image of the eternal God. Men are apt to think that religion is but one of the many duties of life, and that it ought to have its own time and its own place like the others, and they set apart for it churches and Sundays and certain special occasions, and having done so, they seem to consider it an intruder if it appears out of these limits. But religion is not just one of the many duties of life. It is itself the life, through which alone all duty can be done. As the sap of the root circulates through every branch and twig and leaf of the tree, so the love of God, which is the sap of this new spiritual root, ought to circulate through every thought and desire and action of the man. So far as a man is truly religious, he judges of everything by the light of God's will, and this will of God he gives as the reason of his judgment Whenever he is asked for his reason. Amongst those who, not nominally, but really, acknowledge the authority of God, such a reason will be considered as the only good reason. God is not really acknowledged where his authority cannot be appealed to as a ground of judgment or of action. It is a small thing to me, says the Apostle of the Gentiles, to be judged of you or of man's day. The expression is remarkable man's day. This is man's day. Man now looks at things and judges of them by the light of his own self-will, and this way of judging passes current and is little questioned. It was in man's day that the just one, the anointed of the Father, was rejected and condemned, and those who judge according to man's day do still continue to reject and condemn him. But there is another day coming, the day of the Lord, and by its light all the judgments of man's day shall be judged. Man's judgment shall pass away with man's day, but the judgment of the Lord shall stand, for the day of the Lord is eternity. We may live even now in the light of God's day, for the sun of righteousness has arisen, and many rays of its heavenly light reach the conscience. The Bible is full of that light, and God answers prayer by the communications of it to our spirits. It shows things as they are, for it shows them as God sees them, and it shows things as they always will be, for it is the light of eternity. The man who lives in this light sees God to be the only satisfying portion of the soul, and chooses God for his own portion. He who lives in the light of man's day sees nothing but the perishing things of time as a portion and can therefore choose no other. Now mark these men. As death approaches them, the one feels that in leaving this world he is leaving his portion, all that he knows or dreams of as good, forever. The other knows that he is entering on the full enjoyment of that portion which he has chosen here and here tasted to be good but which he cannot fully enjoy whilst encompassed with the body of his humiliation all the thoughts of the one are about to perish all the thoughts of the other are about to be accomplished thus life and death are set before every man god has made a general proclamation of love and compassion to the whole race and they who hear it rejoice for the consolation He commands all men to believe that their sins are forgiven. Therefore, St. John says that they who do not believe that God hath given us eternal life in his Son, make God a liar. God proclaims over the whole world, Return unto me, ye backsliding children, and every one who hears his voice answers, I will arise and go to my Father. This proclamation of free, unconditional mercy manifested in the gift of Christ is the blessed gospel of the grace of God, which has appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present evil world, looking for that blessed hope, even the glorious appearing of the great God, even our Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel is a message of most free and unbounded love, and yet no message ever came to man which required him to make such sacrifices. But this is in the very nature of the thing. The receiver of a free and generous kindness cannot but feel himself required to respond to it by the sacrifice of self and he will refuse the kindness if he cannot make up his mind to the sacrifice. The heart which deliberately clings to self cannot for its very life receive or admit a generous and disinterested kindness. Self must be cast out in order to admit the kindness. Its very baseness may enable it to receive an act of kindness, a donation, an alms, But it cannot receive the love which does the kindness without being changed into the same image, without becoming itself generous. And so, when the pardon of the gospel is supposed to be a mere removal of penalties and deliverance from torments, a man may catch at the pardon and keep his selfishness. But when it is seen to be the gift of infinite love, of wholly disinterested self-sacrificing love on the part of God laid down at the door of man's heart and waiting there with a patience which is grieved but not exhausted by the madly pertinacious rejection which meets it. When it is seen to be the gift of God's own heart, the gift of himself to his poor prodigals, his apostate children, no man can receive it and continue selfish. The very sight of such love compels him to sell all and buy it, to surrender himself and cast out all besides, that he may make room for the reception of this overwhelming, annihilating, unrepayable love. Such love, if realized, would be perfect torture to any one who did not submit himself with grateful humility who did not recognize God as the only and necessary and perpetual giver, and himself as only a receiver. But the great practical difficulty is to realize it. This love of God, this eternal embrace of the Father of our spirits, when once seen, appears so glorious, so subduing, so attractive that until by bitter experience we learn the deceitfulness of our own heart, we can scarcely conceive the possibility of our ever-forgetting God for a moment. But deep humiliation is the lesson which man has to learn in this world. He has to be taught his own weakness, and his own utter incapacity to produce or maintain in himself the feeling of common gratitude to God without the continued supply of divine grace. He has to learn that he can be nothing but a receiver, that his only strength consists in the strength of God, communicated to him from moment to moment, that he has nothing of his own which is good and never will have, and that his spiritual perfection and blessedness consist in his being a receiver of God, of God's life and love, and light, in his being a branch on the true vine, and not a plant on his own root. Let him then live in the spirit of dependence and the spirit of prayer, listening to that word, Abide in me. The Apostle James says, Count it all joy when you fall into divers' trials, for the trial of your faith giveth it endurance that is, works the divine principle into the very substance of the mind. This is surely the great purpose of our Father in his providential dealings. Not a sparrow falleth to the ground without God, and not an event happens without a particular reference to the state and character of the person to whom it happens. We have thus, every day of our lives, many direct and special messages from God to our souls, And surely we show him small respect if we treat his messages as trifling things. They are full of importance. They are opportunities given to us of dying to self and living to God and holding communion with him. In every one of them, God is saying, Seek ye my face. And we ought to be ever ready with our answer, Thy face, Lord, we will seek. With what an awakenedness of attention should we live if we really believed that every event is a voice from God and an opportunity of dying to self? My dear reader, allow me to repeat this to you. Every event that happens to ourselves or those around us strengthens either the love of God or the principle of self within us because on every event we exercise our judgment or our feelings and this we must do either according to the will of God or according to our own will. Thus we can never stand still for a moment. There is no rest from the conflict. We are continually taking part either with God or against Him. There are but two ways in which men can walk towards eternity. The narrow way, which leads to life, or the broad way, which leads to destruction? The first is the way of self-forgetting and God-pleasing. The second is the way of self-pleasing and God-forgetting. In one or the other of these ways, every man is walking. He is either resisting self or he is not. He may be doing nothing absolutely wrong according to the world's estimate of duty. But unless he is on principle denying himself and taking up his cross daily, he cannot be Christ's disciple, for there is no room for Christ's love in a heart which refuses to give up self. Oh, if we felt as we ought that that only is good which draws us near to God, and that self is indeed the great bar which divides us from God and keeps us at a distance from him. How entirely should we be reconciled to those events which cross and thwart the principle of self, seeing that they weaken the bar which separates us from God, our only real good? We should then know that there is no evil but sin, and that everything God sends must be a blessing, if received in the spirit of that prayer which says, Not my will, O God, but thine be done. We are apt to lay our own faults upon events, and to think that if our circumstances had been more favorable, as we call it, we should have been more religious, or more peaceful, or more spiritually minded. The Apostle James meets all such complaints in this way, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. In this manner every appointment is gracious in its intention and divinely fitted for its purpose, seeing that it cometh down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Begin footnote number 1, page 145. It seems to me quite clear that the Apostle does not mean to say, as translators in general have supposed, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. No one is disposed to question this. And besides, it makes nothing at all for the argument which he is holding. He had said, that we ought to count it all joy when we fall into divers' trials because the trial of our faith increases its strength. Then he supposes someone objecting. Yes, but there are events which, by leading us into sin, weaken instead of strengthening our faith. It evidently would be no answer to such an objection to say, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, for the objector might reply, I have no doubt of that. But the bad gifts, the events which lead me into sin, come from above also, or at least are not prevented from coming by the power above. And it is of these bad gifts that I am speaking at present and not of the good ones. The true interpretation of the Apostle's words precisely meets this objection. There are no bad gifts, no bad events. Every appointment is gracious in its design, and divinely fitted for that design; all events are fitted for exercising and strengthening the faith of those to whom they are sent; and they have been selected by infinite love and infinite wisdom for this object. Man may neglect or misuse them, but let him not presume to say, "I am tempted of God." He is himself to blame; he may have cast away an opportunity of growing for heaven. He may have converted a blessing into a curse but the appointment itself was wise and gracious the natural sun sends forth wholesome warmth in his beams the diseased state of the object on which his beams alight may convert that wholesome warmth into fever or putrefaction yet in itself it is a wholesome warmth even so the beams of the sun of righteousness may be turned to evil by the diseased heart of a man And yet there is nothing but love in God. End of footnote number one, page 145. Practical religion consists in seeing God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in everything, and expecting a blessing from Him in everything and in being more concerned as to the spiritual improvement which we may draw from every event that befalls us, than as to the nature of the event itself being either agreeable or disagreeable to us. In other words, it consists in the spirit of dependence. Affliction is a great realizer, or rather a great detector of the want of reality in religion. We perhaps thought ourselves Christians and that we were founded on the rock, and now affliction comes and we shake like aspen leaves. Could this be if we were really on the rock? We thought fondly that God was the chosen portion of our souls and that though all created things were taken from us, we had enough when we had him. And yet when he crosses some desire of our hearts or removes some of his own gifts, health it may be, or a friend, Or even a little of this world's good, we seem as if we had lost our all, and cry after it as that Danite did after his idols. And thus we learn the fact that our former comfort did not, as we idly supposed, flow from the eternal fountain, for that still remains to us, but had been drawn from perishing cisterns, seeing that now, when they are broken, we die of thirst. This is an important discovery. And it is to make this discovery to us that God sends affliction. Let us then receive it in deep humility. Let us receive it as a call from God to leave the creature behind us and go directly into His own more immediate presence, into His inner chamber. Reader, will you allow me to speak a word to you on this matter? beware of occupying your mind as to how the affliction happened or how it might have been prevented. Think not of the oversight or folly or malice which may appear to you to have been the immediate occasion of it. God did it, and you must bid away all second causes from your thought and carry the affliction to his throne of grace and cast it and yourself before him." Ask Him to deliver you from resting on any created portion, and pray Him to become Himself your real, true, and everlasting portion. Take heed that this affliction be not lost, abide in His presence, and be jealous of receiving comfort from any other source. You may lose your affliction if you do, and oh, remember that holiness is of more importance than comfort and be more anxious for profit from your affliction than for deliverance from it. You are an immortal creature, and eternity is your great concern. Holiness is eternal blessedness. Comfort may be the affair of an hour. And God sends affliction, that we may become partakers of His holiness. Let me conclude by saying that everything is to be looked for and received from God. Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. It is the soul that receives all from God, which alone can feel itself to be the property of God. His property to guide and to command, his property to bless and to keep, his highly prized property purchased at no less a cost than the death of Christ for this very end that he might sanctify it in time and glorify it in eternity. The soul which feels this has peace. It does not make haste, for it knows how secure it is. It possesses the secret of the Lord, that secret which suffices for all circumstances and contingencies, for life, for death, for duty, for suffering, which gives the spirit of a pilgrim and yet a willing servant which gives a foretaste of the joy of heaven, inasmuch as it is the commencement of the character of heaven. End of chapter 6.